Perhaps you've heard the story about the four servants named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. There was an important job, and everybody was sure somebody would do it. And uh, anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. And somebody got angry because it was everybody's job, and everybody thought anybody could do it, but nobody realized that everybody would do it. It ended up that everybody blamed somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. You've probably met those four at work, haven't you? Um, I share this story because sometimes saints get confused about what is our job and what is God's job. And 1 Corinthians 3 clarifies that quite a bit. It sharpens the pencil to a fine point. You see, sometimes saints, uh, we get territorial, we get parochial in our mentality. Uh, We easily uh, galvanize and tribalize around those we lionize. We become not primarily known as Christians, but as Calvinists or Arminians or Lutherans or Wesleyans or MacArthurites or Piperites or Mennonites. Now, if apologetics is your forte, uh, some of you will gravitate towards Francis Schaeffer and others towards Norman Geisler. And, And none of those ministers are inherently sinister. If a particular preacher helps you to think biblically, continue to ingest and so be blessed. But somehow, in our fallenness in all this, we begin to think that we have to denigrate other brothers in order to elevate our preferred preacher. And in Corinth, this was exactly the mess that they found themselves steeped in. The Bible says, some said in the church, well, I follow Paul. And others said, I follow Apollos. And still others, Cephas, the Aramaic name for Peter. In our short text today, there are just a few verses, my friends. Scripture will use a metaphor from agronomy to squash the unholy taxonomy that disrupts our harmony. The Holy Spirit will move the pen of Paul to diminish the distinctions between God's servants that our personal petty preferences and carnality always cause to surface. But God will make a different distinction a distinction between the sovereign and his servants. That's the distinction Scripture wants us to see. Not the distinction between servants, but the distinction between the sovereign and his servants. And so if you turn with me in the Word of God today to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 today, that is on page 1212 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, just reach out and grab ours, the Blue Pew Bible, page 1212, you will find 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As we turn in the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that word and ask him to bless our time together today. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your work around the world and in our neck of the woods. We're thankful for our brother Joey and the work he uses to calvinize and uh, be a catalyst to galvanize your people towards evangelism, towards discipleship, towards our our young people, uh, becoming the kind of people that bring you glory. And we pray, Lord, that today as we look at 1 Corinthians 3 and we see this squabble over servants, that we would instead blow through the smoke of us and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would see the sovereign as central and us as instrumental and peripheral. You are necessary. You are all we need. You use us. You call us. You woo us. You draw us. You equip us. You send us out. But you 
are the only ones that can make it grow. You are God, and we need you. We pray, Lord Jesus, we would see this dichotomy today, and it would lead us to glorify you and not man, and also to put our hand to the plow and not look back. We pray this in the name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. So the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 5, 1 Corinthians 3, starting at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. So the first distinction we see in our passage is this. Uh, We are but servants of the sovereign. We are but servants of the sovereign. The Corinthians had been quarreling about which preacher they preferred following. Corinth had received some some homiletic heavy hitters. They had an all-star team in their list of pastors. Uh, This blessed church was founded by none other than the Apostle Paul, a theologian, missionary, church planter par excellence. In addition to this great apostle to the Gentiles, the Corinthian congregation also was blessed with a stint of service from the Apostle Peter, the rock of the Jewish early church. That is quite a one-two team. And in between, they had a productive and extended pastorate from none other than Apollos. Now, Acts chapter 18 tells us Apollos was eloquent in delivery. He was fervent in spirit, and he was mighty with the Scriptures. That is quite a trio for any church to have been blessed with. And so despite all that God had done in, in so blessing, Well, Satan was right there, and he managed to get in the mix of all this. The Corinthians, well, they factionalized around their favorite preacher. And if they could, they probably would have worn tunics with the name of their favorite preacher on the back, like a baseball jersey. Instead of Syndergaard, it would say Apollos. And instead of Goldschmidt, it would read the Apostle Paul, number one. What does Paul say about all this? He sees himself venerated, and he's not excited. He's saddened. Uh, Listen again to verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants. Servants. Through whom you believe. Now, that word for servants is the Greek word diakonos. It is the Greek word uh, of one who waits on tables, a, a waiter, a simple server. On the high end of the semantic range, you could expand it to mean maybe an assistant. But it basically means the low end of the range, a simple servant. Who are we? We are servants. Servants. According to the Holy Spirit, our ministry heroes are primarily servants of the sovereign. That means they're not superstars. They're not even our superiors. They're servants of the sovereign. Now the Corinthians assumed that those who ministered to them had some kind of special spiritual status, and so being identified with that preacher somehow gave you status by association. And in this worldly way of thinking, ministry became about status and self. 
But Paul and the Holy Spirit said, no, 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 no. Ministry is about service. Ministry is about service. Paul cuts through the Corinthian bluster with a simple counter. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? And here's the Bible's answer. Servants through whom you believe. Now friends, that means that even the greatest Christian leader is only a servant of Jesus. And you and I, therefore, must always remember that it's never about us, it's about Jesus. And it's easy for a church to lose that focus. And then we begin to contend with God. And God will share His glory with no man, with no preacher, with no church, with no denomination. We worship the Lord and Him alone. And so we must forever endeavor to keep the main thing, the main thing. We must take a cue from the 24 elders in the book of Revelation and the four living creatures of Revelation 4 who rightfully and joyfully sing, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they existed and they were created. You might want to write Revelation 4 next to this passage because those with a heavenly perspective See this very clearly. Now, back in 1918, there was a hymn writer who cued on to this, and, and he wrote these words, Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Broader than the scope of my transgressions, greater far than all my sin and shame, oh, magnify the precious name of Jesus. Praise His name. Now, we live in an age where everybody wants to be somebody, don't we? There would be no Instagram if there wasn't that case, right? We live in an age where everybody wants to be somebody, where fame is the name of the game. I first realized this when I came back on furlough one year as a missionary in Zimbabwe, and I asked a young lady, a little girl, what would you like to be when you grow up? Teenage girl, her answer was famous. And I said, well, do you want to be an astronaut famous? you want to be a, a movie star famous? you want to be, what kind of, you know, do you want to invent something famous? And the answer was, just famous. Not famous for achievement, famous as an end unto itself. And, and that little girl really explained to me the zeitgeist of the culture back home that had changed while I was away. We live in an age where everybody wants to be somebody, where fame is the name of the game, and so Christians must remember we are but servants of the sovereign. Paul does not call himself just a servant. He, he, he's going to select a, an agrarian metaphor that's even more lowly than a waiter in their culture. I want you to listen again to verse 6 because he chooses something that would be sort of shocking to those hero hearers. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. Friends, in the first century Mediterranean world, they were all part of a, a largely agrarian economy. And so most people in that world, well, they were slaves. And they were slaves on large-scale farming operations, plantations, if you will. Uh, and the lowest-ranking slave was the field hand who was directly involved in the planting and the tending and the reaping of the owner's crops. And so the Corinthians who were putting their preachers on pedestals and then stupefyingly saying, I have status because I subscribe to that preacher and that faction, 
Well, Paul gives them no traction on that action. He equates himself in Apollos' position to the position of plowboy or water boy. And that was not how the Corinthians thought of anyone, oh boy. I hope it's becoming somewhat biblically clear. You and I are but servants of the sovereign. You see that? The first point, please don't miss it. Secondly, uh, the servant must be faithful to his task, but the sovereign assigns the task. In your bulletin today, you can follow along and not have to write all of this out. It's in the middle of your bulletin. We're on point two. The servant must be faithful to his task, but the sovereign, he's the one who gets to assign each task. We see this in verse five. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. Now listen. As the Lord assigned to each. Who said, Apollos, you're going to have these gifts and be this pastor in this sequence? And who said... Paul, you're going to have these gifts and it's going to be different and you're going to come in a different, you're going to start and the other guy's going to build. Who said that? The Lord assigned to each. God is God and he gets to decide who gets what spiritual gift. In Ephesians 4, 8, it tells us when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives and then he gave gifts to men. The Bible teaches that God gave gifts of individuals and God gave gifts to individuals. Uh, that Jesus gave gifts of individuals to the church is seen in Ephesians 4, 10 through 12. Ephesians 4, 10 through 12 says, He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now verse 11, And he, being Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the work of ministry. God gives to his church a gift of individuals, pastors and shepherds and teachers and evangelists to equip us all. And... That means that Jesus decides who gets called into ministry. That means we don't decide. Jesus decides. We don't choose. God chooses. Now, when God chooses, there'll be an inner calling. There'll be this still, small voice of God that gets louder and louder and louder, like the radio picking up volume until you catch the tune. And that inner call will become outwardly apparent to his people, our brothers and sisters. They will begin to see the hand of God on your life. They will begin to see the call of God on your life. They might even see it before you fully get it. And they'll nudge you and say to you, I see something God is doing in your life. But the point is, God calls us to ministries, and then we have to be faithful to answer that call. I say that because Satan doesn't want this. Uh, Satan wants you to believe that some other brother is valuable. In fact, some other brother is indispensable but you, my friends, are inconsequential, unimportant, and your service is insignificant. So don't bother answering the call when Christ speaks to you. You see, Satan wants us to sit on our hands. The Bible tells Christians to work with their hands. So one of the first lies Satan sends to us once he gets us, once we realize that we belong to Jesus, is Satan will try hard to say, yes, but you have nothing to offer Jesus. That's for somebody else. So don't even bother. But friends, the Bible is very clear that every Christian has a gift. 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received at least a gift, you're to use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's various grace. He's given you a gift for you to use for Him through us for His glory. 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes, Now, there are varieties of gifts, 
but there's the same Spirit who gives them. There are varieties of service, but there's the same Lord who calls us to service. There are varieties of activities, that is, ministries, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each, the Bible says, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what purpose? For the common good. Not that I'd be a superstar, but so that I could serve you so that you would grow in Him and we would bring glory to Jesus. Uh, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For, for one is given through the Spirit, this gift or that gift, but all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one, the Bible says, as He wills. So God is building a holy people. Did you know that? He is. And, and you and I are living stones in that holy structure. That means each stone is needed. That means each stone is precious. That means each stone has a God-given purpose and position, and we need them. And so that comes back to each of us. Is your stone doing your part for your king? Can other brothers rest on your steadiness for Jesus, or is there a perilous gap in God's wall because your stone is a wall? 1 Corinthians 4.2 is clear. It says this, It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. It is required of us Christians that we be found faithful. Now, I meet some saints, and they, they tell me they want to do something really significant for Jesus. But did you know the path to greater effectiveness is paved with simply greater faithfulness? Jesus tells us in Luke 16 that he who's faithful in little, he will entrust with much. He who is faithful in little, he will entrust with much. It raises the question, Christian, are we faithful in the little things? If not, then larger endeavors will probably elude us in kingdom service. Because God is no fool. Even the night manager at the Waffle House in Nowheresville, Kentucky, knows that you don't just assign a task to anybody. You ask the faithful worker to do tasks. The night manager at Waffle House knows that. Do you not think that an all-wise God who's managing everything, when he looks across the kingdom and he rings your bell and says, I want you to do this, and he's going to look at, is he faithful in that little thing? So that then he can say, I'll give you additional things because that servant is trustworthy. Now, we live in a day which folks uh, vie for dominance and prominence, and even in ministry, there's an unholy jockeying and peacocking. Whose blog has the most followers? Who can fritter on Twitter the most twits with their tweets? It's like a sport in ministry. Now, now I want you to understand there's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to reach the multitudes with a life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. But there is something fundamentally wrong in wanting a following for the sake of having followers. The Bible says our job is faithfulness. God is in charge of fruitfulness. Uh, we are to be obedient to the process. God will then bring about the product, which brings us to our third principle today regarding the sovereign and his servants. The third principle is this. The servant must be diligent, but the sovereign makes it grow. The servant must be diligent, but the sovereign makes it grow. Listen again to verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, I memorized this in the NIV when I was a younger Christian. 
And the NIV phrased it this way. It's how it's always stuck in my memory. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. But God made it grow. Years ago, I read a book by a guy named uh, Vernon Mortensen. And uh, his book was on the history of the Evangelical Alliance mission. That was the mission we worked with in Zimbabwe. And the title of that book, you know what it was? God made it grow. God made it grow. Because you know what? When you read the story of how God worked for over 100 years all around the world with team missionaries, God made it grow. All the sacrifices of those missionaries, all their, their, their treasure and time and talents together would not have had one lasting wit of kingdom impact if it weren't for the fact that God stepped in and made it grow. Yes, God's servant must be diligent, but God is the only necessary ingredient in his kingdom work. Jesus told us the truth when it comes to bearing kingdom fruit. He said, apart from him, what are we going to accomplish, friends? Nothing. Nothing. We can't do anything unless Jesus is in it. Uh, through the scrupulous application of methodology, we can fill programs. Uh, through slick rhetoric and eel tickling, we can fill stadiums. But it is only through God's enablement that we can build God's kingdom. Because God must make it grow. God must make it grow. Now, that's up here. You live down here. And God rings and tells you, I want you to serve in this area, this little meager area that doesn't seem all that impressive. God may ask you to work with our, our little ones or, or maybe with our teens. And, and you know what, friends? Some of those toddlers may grow up one day to be Calvary's elders. Some of those teens may become titans for the gospel in their generation doing things you never got the opportunity to do for Jesus. But if that is so, it's only because God made it grow. Amen? Which brings us to point four today. The servant is only the visible instrument. The servant is only the visible instrument. The sovereign is the one to whom we are ultimately dependent. The servant is only the visible instrument. The sovereign is the one to which we are ultimately dependent. I don't believe the Holy Spirit could have said it any plainer in Scripture than verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. There's only one hero in the Bible, and that's Jesus. There's only one necessary being in the universe, and that's God. There's only one worker that's truly essential in God's church, and that's the Holy Spirit. John Piper, John Calvin, John MacArthur, they're all wonderful instruments. But friends, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen? It's great that we love a particular preacher. It's biblical to respect godly leaders who teach us. But friends, the servant is just the visible instrument. It's the sovereign to which we must be ultimately dependent. And so Spurgeon and Moody and Wesley, they're all dead and gone. But you know what? God's work continues on. Now, this decade alone has watched many saints go home. Billy Graham, R.C. Sproul, Chuck Colson, Charles Ryrie, and on and on and on. And yet, you know what? The gospel continues to go on and on and on. Though those workmen are dead. Now, what is true in the church universal is also true in the church local. Uh, Calvary Church has had many pastors fill its pulpit in the over 100 years that we've been here. Now, those pastors have come and gone, some to other 
parts of God's vineyard, some on to glory, but God's work continues on, amen? Charles Wesley was right, God buries his workmen, but he carries his work. Because the servant is just a visible instrument. The sovereign is the one to whom we're all ultimately dependent. Now, since the best minister is but a servant, and since you and I are but instruments, and since it's true uh, that we are all utterly dependent on the sovereign, that brings us to point five today. Point five today. The servants ought not be in competition. The servants are not in competition. Rather, they're to be complementary to one another. Not competition, but complementary. The Corinthian Christians saw ministry as competition. I follow Paul, you follow Apollos. But, but Paul knew this was a fallacy. God's servants are not in competition, they're in concert, and God is the master conductor. And the horn section and the violinists are working together to make an orchestra beautiful. So we always need to submit to the sovereign. We need to play with all of our heart as unto the Lord, and we need to listen to the conductor. He's spoken in Scripture, and he speaks through a still small voice. Every gospel worker, every gospel worker serves at the pleasure of the king. Did you know that? You and I are providentially placed in a particular place for a particular period for a particular purpose. And the king can move those pieces on the chessboard however he wants because he sees the whole board and he's going to win that game. Therefore, no servant ought ever be in competition. We ought to be complementary, which brings us to verse 8. We see that very clearly. He who plants and he who waters, where are they, friends? Well, they're one. They're one, the Bible says. They're one. And each is going to receive his wages according to his labor. That means God is going to use some of us to plant the gospel. And he's going to use some of us to water the gospel seed. And then he's going to use some of us to reap that gospel seed. We see this in the local church this way. Um, some saints are built and called, and fashioned, and placed in Calvary Church to nurture us with their mercy gifts. And they come to us at our bedsides, in our hardest times, and we thank God for them. And then some saints are built to strengthen us with their teaching gifts in, the, in our small groups, and, and from the pulpit. And then some saints are, are built with their faith gifts to pray it all into fruition. And we don't always see them, they're often in a prayer closet, right? So right now, there's saints in the conference room right behind me, and they're praying right now, and I'm going to tell you right now, they're no less essential than the visible greeter and usher who greeted you when you came in and you felt the love of Christ and valued before God. Uh, the nursery worker who's downstairs right now and, and is keeping your toddler tame with a chair and a whip, and you know how it is, you live with them, <laughs> so that you can endure my preaching, they're doing a great service. That person is no less vital than the most golden-voiced worship leader who sings a song who brings you to tears for Jesus. I'm going to tell you right now, the, the unsung sound person who most of us only notice when there's that infrequent moment of feedback, right? <laughs> then we all look, who's doing sound today? Uh, it's a great job. They only notice your service when it goes wrong. Hey, friends, that person doing the sound is no less important in God's wall than the most effective evangelist at his most effective revival in his entire ministry career. Why? 
because verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his wages according to his labors. Your job is to just be faithful to whatever the king assigns. And since point five is true, and it is, point six is equally true. And we would do well to embody it. Point six is this. There ought to be solidarity among the servants tending the sovereign property. There ought to be solidarity among the servants who are tending the sovereign property. Look at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, you are God's building. That means instead of rivalry, there ought to be solidarity. Because the water boy and the plow boy do not work in competition to make a crop. They cooperate or there is no crop, amen? The crop belongs to the master. Do you remember, friends, he owns us. He bought us with a price. He redeemed us through the precious blood of his precious son. And so you and I are now his chosen instruments, his servants. And, and one day, to him, we must give account for our labors. May we so take our talents and time and treasure that we multiply the king's investment in us. May we be those that the Bible says are 30, 60, 100 fold what was put into us for Jesus. Many times we've said here together that the God of nature is the God of Scripture. So let me tell you about the God of nature. The God of nature takes a single mealy pip. For those of you here, that's a piece of corn. A single seed of corn. And you put that single mealy pip in the ground, and you know what it will make almost every time? 800 more on a single ear of corn. One pip, one stalk, 800 fruit. That's the God of nature. Oh, that every one of us at Calvary Church would take God's gospel investment in us and pray that this church would routinely see an 800-fold return on investment for Jesus. What would New Jersey look like? if we were as productive as a single seed of corn. Because the God of nature is the God of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, let's endeavor not to fritter our lives away today, chasing all the shiny baubles that we can't take with us. Let's not live for the temporal accolades that fade when men's affection is directed at the next distraction. May we not chase the vain. May we pursue that which remains. Which brings us to our last point today, point seven. Point seven today is this. The servant will be rewarded. The servant will be rewarded. And the sovereign is and gives those rewards. The sovereign is and gives those rewards. You see this in verse eight. He who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his wages according to his labor. We're going to speak at length on this subject next Sunday, so I'm only going to just sort of set the table. You'll have to tune back in next Sunday. But for now, I want us to remember this. The sovereign is and the sovereign gives rewards to his servants. If, if you would turn with me to the very last book of the Bible and turn to me to the very last chapter of that Bible, you would find yourself in Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22. And that's on page 1328 of our Blue Pew Bibles, Revelation 22. 
And I want you to find verse 10. Revelation 22.10. We're going to read a little bit. We're almost done. Revelation 22, starting at verse 10. Then he told to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. And let him who is vile continue to be vile. And let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Now, at first glance, this sounds a little strange. And that's only because we stop there. If you go on to read verse 12, it's not so strange. You see, verse 10 and verse 11 remind us that right now, there are those who relentlessly pursue sin and self. But verse 12 is going to tell us they're going to get their recompense one day. Maybe not today, but one day. And then verse 10 and verse 11 remind us there are also right now, right here, people who are actively, stridently, fervently pursuing Christ. They're putting His kingdom first and His righteousness ahead of everything else. And verse 12 reminds us, friends, they too will get their reward. Listen to verse 12. This is Jesus. Behold, I'm coming soon, and my reward is with me. And I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Friends, Jesus is both the reward and the rewarder. Uh, God the Father said to his faithful servant Abraham, when Abraham had followed faithfully, but the great nation and the great land and the great name, they hadn't really come to great fruition yet. He'd followed in faith and not seen it all come together. In fact, he hadn't even had a child yet. And, and I love how the old King James in Genesis 15.1 says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Remember, God came to him in Genesis 12. Nothing's happened, nothing's happened. Promise, promise, promise. No deliverance. Chapter 13, chapter 14. Now we get to chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Fear not, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceedingly great reward. You see, friends, what the Father revealed to the faithful in the Old Testament, so the Son reminds us if we're faithful in the New Testament. Jesus tells us in John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in, and he will find passage, but the thief comes only to steal and destroy. But I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The, the primary reward of the believer is God himself. Life in God Himself. Life with God Himself. Life from God Himself. And so, here's the question. Where are you? Are you by yourself? Trying to make it on your own? Well, if that's the case, you have a problem, friends. Because the Bible teaches, and all of human history demonstrates that the icy hand of death holds all of its victims in an unbreakable grip. But there is one, and there is only one, who overcame the hand of death on his own strength. And the Bible calls him the author of life. You know what his name is? Jesus. And there's no other name like Jesus, my friends. 
The good news is, if you reach out to Jesus in faith, Jesus will receive us every time. He will not turn you away if you reach out to Jesus. Jesus promises in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The first sermon in church history was at Pentecost, and it promised this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. The book of Romans builds in ten chapters to this truth. And in Romans 10.9, it declares, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that is, you're ready to make Jesus God of your life, and you believe with all your heart that God raised him from the dead, so, so you believe in biblical Jesus, not fictional Jesus that you made up. Uh, Romans 10.9 declares, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is now your Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or it's with your heart you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you're confessing or saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts on the name of the Lord, will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Jesus. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, right now Jesus is calling. He's calling, O sinner, come home. Revelation 22, 17, the Bible says, the Spirit and the Bride say, come. And let him who hears, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of life. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, I'm going to invite you today, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Perhaps the Holy Spirit has been knocking at your door. We've been sharing the gospel repeatedly throughout Corinthians. We shared the gospel clearly Good Friday and Easter. And you know, you know about Jesus, you've heard about Jesus, but you haven't put your faith in Jesus. You haven't made him your God and your Savior. That's not unusual, that's normal. There was a man named the Apostle Paul, he wrote our passage today. And God was wooing and drawing and calling Paul, and Paul resisted for all he was worth. He had his self-worth bound up in the fact that he was a persecutor of the church. He was smarter than all that. He was going to get to heaven on his own power and steam by his righteousness, and, and compared to his neighbor, he looked like a good guy. But you see, we don't stack up next to our neighbor. We stack up next to our Savior. And our Savior was tempted in all points and yet was without sin. The God says, be holy for I am holy, and you and I, we wholly miss that, holiness. And that's what sin is. In the Greek New Testament, the word is hamartano. It means to miss the mark. You can miss the bullseye by millimeters or miles, but it's still a miss. And a miss will keep you forever from the love of God in eternity. And so the Apostle Paul writes in one of his letters later after he became a Christian, he describes this tension between his heart and God's wooing and calling and drawing that was slow and purposeful, and he describes it as kicking against the goads. Now, there was a long, sharp stick that a, that a person would use to make a stubborn mule move in the path it needed to go, and that was a goad, and it would poke in. It wasn't comfortable, but it would steer that animal to where it needed to be, and friends, if God has been poking, if God has been prodding, if God has been wooing and drawing and sending you people and scripture and sermons and, 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 and he's revealed to you that you're a sinner and he's revealed to you that Jesus is the answer and Jesus is the savior and you've been kicking. Surrender your foolish ways. 
Don't be that stubborn mule. Find the way today. Paul did, and it tremendously and dramatically changed his life forever. If you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, and you want to stop the fight and embrace the light, well, you can pray with me right here, right now. If this is the desire of your heart, it's not a magical incantation, it's the desire of your heart, you can pray with me in the quietness of your heart like this. Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I know that Jesus is God. I know that Jesus is your one and only Son. I know that Jesus did what I could never do. He lived a life tempted in all points, and yet He alone was found without sin. And then He voluntarily went to that cross, and He took all the sin on His shoulders, and He died, for the wages of sin is death. But on the third day, he rose again because he's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the author of life. And I want new life today. I want to be made your child today. I want to be a co-heir with Jesus, not because I earned it or deserved it, but because Jesus offers it. And I put all of my faith all into the hands of your son. Do something wonderful in my life. Make me that 800-fold mealy cob Christian who makes a deep and lasting impact for Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat>